54th episode of Rank and Review. My name is Larry Parsons. I am your host and random Canadian. And this episode means something to me. Um, this is me stepping out of the closet as a huge Stephen King fan, something that I actually used to keep secret or seem somewhat ashamed of. No, I love Stephen King. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And today my friend Rob Reynolds and I are going to discuss six adaptations of Stephen King's works. And because both of us are well-read in the King universe, we will be commenting both on the films and the source material. So I hope you enjoy a bit of a different spin on Rank and Review this week. And I hope you were willing to give me some feedback. You can do that by sending me an email at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Also, you can find the podcast on iTunes, and if you were to write me a good four-star review and post it there, it's really helpful in getting me found by other podcast fans. So any of the Rank and Review fans out there using iTunes, if you would be so good as to do that for me, I'd owe you one. Enough of this preamble, uh, other than to warn you of the same spoilers and coarse language that you typically encounter with Rank and Review. I hope you enjoy episode 54. Stephen King. So thank you so much uh, for coming and uh, joining me in my garage this night, this very impromptu recording. A uh, long time coming. Yeah, it's been. Uh, I was supposed to be one of the first six episodes, I believe. Uh, you were one of the first people to get your movies. Yeah, and, uh, it's been two years. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so we're gonna make this all worthwhile. We're gonna we're gonna earn this. This is gonna be the longest podcast in the history of the internet. <laughs> this is Robert Reynolds, uh, and uh, we're gonna talk about Stephen King and uh, six adaptations of his work. And um, I used to be ashamed that. To admit that Stephen King was one of my favorite authors, for some reason it was like a dirty secret. I've, I've come out of the closet with it, but I actually straight up legitimately am a fan of I, Stephen King. I honestly consider him, uh, despite the fact of his his startup and his love of doing what a lot of snobs consider trashy kind of genre horror, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's one of... America's best authors, to be yeah. honest. He's branched out into so many other genres over the years and has had has been wildly successful with a lot of them. Yeah. And um, he may do B-horror novels, but he does them better than most, does he not? He does. Um, as a matter of fact, he does them better than a lot of the movie makers that 
adapt his works. Uh, I, I was glad you picked six movies that actually were good of his because you could have easily picked things like Maximum Overdrive or The yeah. Running Man or The Mangler. There's you know? plenty, plenty of shit to choose from, and I did try to you know stack the list with movies that I thought were decent. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are better than others. I'm going to be real, but uh, of course, I think that it's a pretty good list. There's a, a hell of a lot of talent involved, yeah, uh, both behind the camera and in front in a lot of these movies. And people in the list who have worked with Stephen King material before to great success. Yeah, so, Frank Darabont being Rob Reiner being another. Yeah. yeah. Um, my relationship with Stephen King was basically um, my dad had a bunch of his books on the shelf and when I was a kid I uh, had problems reading I was behind my reading class and I had to go to sit in the dumb row and I had to get pulled out of class to get special treatment and I had got a complex about it so I taught, <clears throat> told myself for whatever reason if I could read the biggest book on the bookshelf then no one could tell me that I couldn't read and that book happened to be It <laughs> Stephen King <laughs> Which happened to be about seven kids, which were about the age I was when I was trying to read this thing. Now, I can't say that I actually took it all in, that I made sense of it, but over the course of a little more than a year... Was was this the origin of your overriding fear of clowns? Yeah. Well, I'm actually far more okay with clowns than some, but it definitely got me into the King universe and the sort Mm. of scary imagination. And I think the fact that it was about kids locked me into it. I think I might not have made it through the book. If uh, it hadn't had the, just yeah. the pure coincidence. The, the nostalgia element of that book probably didn't resonate with you at that age. No. But the I fact just, that they were kids. I was I was with the kids completely. Yeah. And that was great about revisiting the book oh, three or four years ago. Well, and we're of an age that... When we were kids, we had, we lived a life more like they did. We didn't have video games and the internet and yeah. that, so it was... It's closer to what we experienced. Yeah, when you went out to play in small town Saskatchewan, you went out... To, it was dairy. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. You went out to to the the places the adults didn't go. Yeah. You know, and and so that would res- resonate a lot for for kids when we were kids uh, for people our age. Yeah. Um, I forgot what my point was. <laughs> well, that's that that identified with it as a kid, right? Uh, my actual yeah. first experience with Stephen King was uh, the book Christine. Right. Um, on a whim, I took it out of the library. I saw it in the school library. And I don't know how that got past the... <laughs> it was about par- teenagers. Good enough. Yeah. I don't know how that got past the parents' council. I was in elementary school. Uh, and I brought it home, and uh, I didn't even start it. And my mom saw it sitting on my dresser and said, Yeah, you're not reading this. Uh, and that, <laughs> that was that was my first experience with Stephen King. So, of course, I had to go track down another one. And that one ended up being uh, uh, Salem's Lot. All right. So that was that was my first experience, and it was just I'd never really read a horror movie or a horror book before, right? And so it was a pretty simple introduction. It's not one of his best, but it's pretty simple. Vampires, hey, yeah. Well, and uh, from that, I, I branched out. Uh, even just this vacation I took this summer, I was in a used bookstore buying cheap Stephen King hardcovers because it was a deal, you know. Well, there's uh, not a bookstore in the in the entire world I don't think you can find you can you can uh, go to where there isn't a Stephen King book a section if not you know, <coughs> several copies of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of Stephen King and I uh, I brought in another fan so we can dig into these a little bit. We we're actually both familiar with the novels and the stories with those novels. And the one advantage of it being so long since you gave me the movies is that I've actually had the opportunity to reread all of them. Yeah. Uh, all of the novels that they're based on uh, more recently, so my memory of the books will actually probably be better than, <laughs> than that of the movies, but 
so we'll I'm muddle excited. through. I'm excited to get to it. I'm gonna unless there's something else you want to say by way of introduction, I'm gonna just list the movies we're gonna talk about. No, nope, let's go to it. Um, we have Pet Cemetery, the '80s adaptation. Mary Lambert is director of Pet Cemetery. From John Carpenter, we have Christine. From uh, Frank Darabont, we have The Mist. Rob Reiner directs Misery. Um, Louis Teague directing Cujo. And a man whose name I'm not going to attempt now <laughs> directed 1408. Uh, yes, Mikhail Hafstrom. I don't know. There's multiple umlauts over these vowels. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm probably massacring that. So yeah, we have a good stack of Stephen King adaptations, and I think we should just jump in. I saw you guys at the football game. How'd you ever get that car fixed up like that? Oh, this plain old-fashioned hard work. Ever since he bought that car, he's been obsessed with it. And you know what else? They told us the man who owned that car last died in it. What do you know about that car? I know that the guy who owned the car before, Arnie, his daughter choked to death in Christine. I swear it's the car. That's Christine coming. Oh, Cherry. That's funny, you know, because I, I heard she was total. Well, after I cleaned up the broken glass, it wasn't so bad. So what if you, you fix it up, you know, and he just comes back and does it again? He won't do it again. So... Christine is is one of these Stephen King books that almost feels like it wanted to be a short story, but it kind of got carried away with itself. Yeah. If if you if you boil down the plot, both the book and the movie, it's Ghost Car. Um, and I will say that John Carpenter's adaptation of the movie of of the book is very faithful. Oh I yes. I mean, it subtracts a lot, but it adds almost nothing. Um, so that's good. What I will say is the main difference I think that I feel between the book. Christine in the movie Christine is that the book I found actually kind of scary and Christine I find really entertaining and I think it's really well executed but I don't necessarily find it to be a scary movie yeah unfortunately in the movie you lose the psychological aspect of it of uh, the main character Arnie Arnie of Arnie Cunningham losing himself uh, to the car and his friends noticing him Losing himself, even when he at times when he doesn't, it, that doesn't translate onto the screen, unfortunately. Uh, it's just a deeper story when you get into the novel. Yeah, uh, I mean, describing it now, it seems very simple, plain, and state. Like uh, a lot of the Stephen King staples are here. We have a sort of bullied, dorky protagonist who has these greaser-like bullies who are way over the line of normal, like drooling sociopath bullies that that only really exist in Stephen King world. Well, yeah, at least in the state of Maine and Stephen King world, yeah. Yeah. There seem Um, to be a lot of them. And Arnie finds his power not through, you know, his own self-awareness or his own abilities, but when he buys a a junker car, which he names Christine, um, and... Oh, no, he doesn't name it Christine. it's called Christine when he buys it. The old man that sells it to him. Correct. Um, and uh, it sort of speaks to the powerful emotions of, of your teenage years. When you're in love, when you're a teenager, you're so fucking in love. And when you're, you're stupid, yeah, yeah. And when you hate somebody, you fuck 
fucking hate somebody, right? And all of these emotions are so huge. Like he it also from, it also speaks to American car culture. Like that, f- the first car you own as a teenager. Yeah. it's it's an, uh, an element take it of, out of here. Yeah, it's an element of freedom. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm I've moved up a step now. I'm not a kid anymore. He goes from playing Scrabbles with his parents and being this little sycophant, basically, yeah. to telling his dad to go fuck himself. Um, and and again, it's that sort of righteous teenage fury harnessed. And everybody else just sees Arnie going through a difficult transition and try to put up with his awkward behavior. But we see, as the readers of the books or as the, as the people watching the movie, that he's being corrupted by an evil force. Force. It's kind of like The Shining in a lot of ways, correct? Yeah. Corrupting Jack Torrance, and, and the the hotel gets to him. It yeah, seizes on his weakness. It's another story of somebody being haunted into a form of insanity. Yeah. But. Uh, Unlike The Shining, this is very targeted towards adolescence. Adolescence, yeah. And The Shining is more about alcoholism. The the, the yes. mask of evil wears is the alcoholism in The Shining, and in here it's just the fact that teenagers are fucking crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and that's interesting. Um, it's I, I think that it's also just one of the least interesting stories that we have of the bunch of the stories that we're talking about too, in that it's sort of a familiar revenge story. Geek gets beaten down. Geek gets power. Geek is corrupted by power, gets revenge, but was it worth it, right? And also, let's face it, cars just aren't that scary. No. And I, I'm not part of the car culture. I'm, I'm knocking on 40. I don't have a driver's license, mm-hmm. right? So I, I don't, like, I'm not going to give you all the specs on Christine. I will say that it's a rare vehicle to get your hands to, and they destroyed a lot of the yeah, ones that are known to exist to make 57 the 57 Plymouth Fury? Yeah. 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 Um, so... They spend a lot of money on the movie, and it does look good. And I want to compliment, sort of. Well, I mean, it's John Carpenter. He yeah. he knows he he might be considered a B director, but I God, I love him. He lets the story do the work. He's not yep. flashy as a director. The most the most recognizable thing about Car- John Carpenter in this movie for me is the score. We sort of jump of back and forth from these sort of old timey fifties. Radio rock and roll team to this shit, sort yeah. of like driving thumping eighties carpenter score, but it, the, I think <laughs> with, that, with that that synthesizer that he just can't let go of. But it still works somehow. Like, it's it's it almost should. his it's almost his signature. Yeah. As soon as you hear that, uh, you know you're watching a a John Carpenter film. There there actually was an episode years ago of um, uh, what was it? It was either Supernatural, maybe it was X-Files, I don't know, but it was kind of a, a, a rip-off of the thing. Yeah. And as a nice little touch... They scored it that They way. scored it with with that cheesy 80s synthesizer thing, just as a little... Yes, we are, we are doing an homage to John Carpenter. But it's interesting because this is... I mean, he, he definitely worked hard. I'm not saying that he you know was doing this just for a buck, but this is coming off of a couple of failures, and he needed a, a couple of lock hits. He made basically Christine and Starman because he considered them safe bets. Yeah. At this time in the 80s, to make a Stephen King adaptation, that's a license to print money. Whether it was good or bad, he made it good, but like the decision was financial. He got his ass kicked with the thing by E.T. <laughs> Just bad timing on yeah, release, that, right? And and it's unfortunate because the thing is one of... It's, it's, it's an amazing movie. It's... It's, it's, it's his best movie, and yeah. it stands up today... Uh, uh, a friend of ours went to film school in Vancouver, and he went in his late 30s. So, of course, he was the oldest one in the entire school. And they were discussing CGI, 
And of course, all the twenty-somethings were going, "Yeah, you need CGI. You need CGI to make good horror." And he said, "No, practical effects can do the job." They they called bullshit. He said, "All What's of you, all thing? of you are coming to my place on Friday night after class. We're making some popcorn. We're getting some beer, and we're watching the thing." Yeah. And they all freaked out. Yeah. Well, and great practical effects in Christine. It's fairly reserved as far as its violence, but I think one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is when. Arnie gives over to the evil when he recognizes that it's not just him, that Christine has power. Mm -hmm. And he turns to the ruin of Christine and says, show me. And we have this great effect where, where all the car, sort of the dents that have been kicked into it are all sort of reshapen. And it's just a matter of them using hydraulics to crush it and then playing the film backwards. backwards yeah. But it looks so good. It's, that's simple film tricks that you don't need CGI for and they work. It's interesting that there is so little blood in the movie, considering A, the book is fucking brutal with the violence, yes, and B, that they put so much foul language in it that the movie got its R rating anyway, so if you're going to go all out, you know, go all out. go all out? It's just a weird choice for me. It, it's a weird choice for John Carpenter, too, because he's never really been one to shy away from from gore when it's appropriate. And it seems like a choice. Like, it's an R-rated movie. It could be there, but it's not. I mean... Uh, and I think the element of the the, the creature haunting the car... In, in the novel, there's always this sort of rotting smell that comes in and out. Yeah. And he'll see the previous owner in the back seat giving him advice. With a little uh, kid... Uh, yeah, anybody who died in the car, you know... Is, we actually see them. And, and, and in the movie, it's more sort of zeroes in on the psychological angle. This is this is this just a bully who's or a kid who's been bullied too much and it has snapped yeah. or or is he actually being haunted? We know that he's haunted, but you can understand how people would just think he's gone crazy. Yeah. I think this movie way, works way more than it doesn't, you know. There's a couple of scenes that don't work for me and and uh one of them is the uh, uh the burned up guy. Right? Uh who they used puppet in the movie, and he—it looks like the crypt keeper. Right. That—that it, it, that one takes me out of it because it's just kind of goofy looking and rubbery and wobbly. It, it is to period. It is what you would be seeing in that time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I guess I see what you're saying. The um, other one is when one of the bullies is being uh, uh, killed by Christine in an alley. He escapes to an alley because it's too narrow for Christine, so Christine crushes herself and slowly. And he does not jump the hood. And he does not jump the hood. Yeah. In in the book, that scene, he doesn't make it to the alley. No. He gets clipped, gets his leg broken, then he gets squashed. Yeah. Uh, that one was kind of one of those, you know, horror... You got a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, it's one of those horror movie tropes where you're yelling at the guy, just jump over the fucking car already! You deserve what's happening to you. Not just you because you're an asshole, but <laughs> because, because you're stupid. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, it, I, I, it has this 80s flaw that I noticed when they have movies set, made in the 80s set in high schools, where everyone in the high school looks like they're, they're 25 at best. Yeah. Like all of them. The one lead greaser who looks like he's trying to be John Travolta. He's just, in his mid-30s. There's no way he's in fucking yeah. high school. There's no. no way. He's got, he's got crow's feet, he's got laugh lines, he's, yeah. you know, <laughs> you can tell he's been a, pa a pack or two a, a day smoker for... Yeah. A good 15, 20 years. And I do think the degree of the bullies is a little bit harsh. I do think it's a it's a common flaw with uh, with Stephen King that he... With 80s movies, even. The yeah. bullies are always always 
you could they're felons. Yeah. Well, their transgression in the car, which is brutally rendered both in the book and the movie, and one of them literally shits into the like uh, and smears it all over the dashboard, all over and, the dashboard, and it's basically like uh, they raped Arnie's girlfriend. Yes, that there is a definite rape implied, analogy in there, right? And, and even the, even the girlfriend picks up on it. Yeah, uh, that she because in the book she kind of wonders if, if he'd react the same way if something yeah. happened to her. In the real world, this is a horrible act of vandalism. In Arnie's world, this is rape and attempted murder. Yeah. So he's completely justified in hunting these guys down, even while he doesn't implicitly do it. Christine goes out on the hunt, hunt independently, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where you get some of the great sort of special effects light shows. I love the car driving while it's on fire, for instance. Yeah, that's a great. <laughs> and just the POV shots through the window uh, of the people running fruitlessly from this car, and they made cars differently, uh, you know, in the fifties. Yeah, that car at a good speed will drive clean through a house. Had, oh, easily, enough, yeah. There's enough metal in that car to make six cars that you'll see on the road today. This is a big... That, that car would have weighed about what a, uh, a ridiculously large truck would like an F-350. Like. Yeah. And again, I'm not a gearhead, but it's it's still... Uh, considering it's ghost car, it's surprisingly sort of creepy and ma- malevolent, you know? Uh, it works better than it should, and I think that's a testament to the... You know Stephen King's premise. I, I think it's also a testament to John Carpenter because he can just between the music and the way he composes the shot and the lighting and the the POV angles, yeah. uh, he can find he he's pretty good at finding malevolence wherever he wants. Yeah. It's one of the things that made the thing work and right. made you question everybody's. What you don't know where the next scene's going to go because at he all. can he can turn any one of them into a suspect. Yeah. But uh, you, the, the central villain for Christine, we, we sort of know, and the idea of a car chasing me, it's not something that typically would, would make me stay up at night. And as I started with this review, I found the book much more frightening than, than the, the movie. Right? Yes, as did I. Um, it's, still a, it's still a good example of John Carpenter's work. Yeah. Um, not as best, of course. But uh, completely solid. But yes, completely solid. Uh, it's an enjoyable watch, uh, even though it's dated. Um, but even some of the the fifties nostalgia aspect of it takes kind of a sting out of the uh, the eighties dating of it. Yeah. It's sort of the Back to the Future syndrome, I like to call it. Yeah. Back to the Future doesn't feel dated because most of it takes place in the fifties. It's like a period piece. That's yeah. that's that is true. Period pieces do tend to age well. That's sort of like Shawshank Redemption will be immortal for that reason. I think it'll age perfectly well because it doesn't feel like a nineties movie. No. Anyway, uh, Christine, thumbs up. Nothing that lives in the imagination is more frightening than the terror that lives in Castle Rock, Maine. Can you get us in here? Can you eat us when you're in here? 
some point we're not talking about it today but at some point in one of my wtf episodes i'm going to be talking about maximum overdrive oh dear the the film that stephen king directed yes in a haze of of cocaine and alcohol (laughs) Uh, and uh, we have to sort of mention the drug days of stephen king he's he's uh He's stopped he's, drinking. He's recovered more or less. I mean, you're always an addict, but he, he had a colorful portion of his early career. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about Cujo, which is the movie and book we are talking about now. Uh, that in an interview he confessed to not actually having any clear memories of writing Cujo, mm-hmm. and that he was kind of disappointed by that because he kind of liked Cujo. <laughs> yeah, this uh, was this was one uh, I was able to reread recently, and and. Uh, I realized I hadn't read it since probably high school. Yeah. It's been years. And I enjoyed it a lot more than I remembered. Yeah. Uh, I remembered it being kind of boring. And I found reading it now, uh, it was not. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely not on any kind of epic scale. There's not really, there's no supernatural element to it. Um, it's Jaws with a dog. It's situational horror. Yeah. And I think that the only big problem that I have for for the movie is that for me the movie doesn't really kick into gear until that situation happens. Yeah. Until the car stops at the garage. And that's almost 50 minutes into this movie. Nothing really happens. It's all lead up. We do see a couple of kills. We do see that Cujo is is deteriorating. Mm -hmm. But for me, that's where the movie starts. And 50 minutes is probably a little bit longer than most people will want to wait. Yeah, it's basically 50 minutes of of, uh, some small town residents' daily life. And the Eh. thing is, is that... With the exception of the little boy, they're kind of hard characters to like. More so in the book, I found, than in the movie. But Yeah, everybody in this... Every character in this book is definitely a flawed human being. Yeah. There, there is nobody who's... Who's going to be taken as a paragon of of, uh, of humanity? At all. So, you know. And upon revisiting both the film and the book, I've come to the conclusion in my heart that this... Cujo is the tragic hero of this story. <laughs> okay. I'm a, I'm a dog person, but these people... There's a sort of romantic triangle that's happening... Uh, there's sort of a weak husband who's preoccupied with a work disaster and not not looking after his wife and not He's being not very, engaged with his family at all. Yeah, he's unplugged from it. So he's you know, it's a stereotype almost, but hard to really like. But it's also hard to like his wife who's got a wandering eye and is so disgusted by her husband that she won't even try to fix things. Yeah. And uh, it's underplayed in the in the movie. The character that she's sleeping with in the in the movie, he's kind of a dick. In the book, he's, he's a huge absolute, dick. Yeah. Like, there's just no reason for you to be with this guy other than you're on full-on self-destruct. Yeah, um, he's absolutely unlikable, unrelatable, unless you're a 
terrible douchebag. The kids that don't, that uh, come visit uh, Kujo seem pretty nice, but the old man who drive, runs the garage is drunk and mean and racist. Yeah. Pretty much all of the characters that Kujo kills have a pretty big flaw to them and are, are bad people. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of... Yeah. <laughs> so, to that end, I don't <clears throat> feel so much about their deaths. You, you and, sort of feel the same way you do about the, the horrible friggin' bully that appears in every... 80s slasher film that oh you know you're gonna you're like oh there's the mean girl yeah. oh there's the asshole jock they're gonna die uh the only really tragic death i think is the police officer yeah who was a genuinely actually one of the few genuinely decent people showed up just to help wrong place wrong time yeah um and uh, all of that is, is sort of taken from the book i think that, that the major difference between the movie and the book is the end yes at the end of the book Thad. What's the little kid's name? I want to Tad. Say. Tad. It, Is he, it Tad? Maybe I'm thinking of uh, of the Pet young, Cemetery. The young son. Is, I think it is Tad. Yeah. He died either of heat exhaustion or from being smothered against his mother being held so tightly towards him. But they were trapped in this boiling hot car. And uh, at the end of the book, though she successfully fends off Cujo, she does not save her son. Yeah. And it ends in an unbelievably tragic way. Yes, horrible. Now, predictably, in, for the Hollywood adaptation... He lives! He lives, and they happy to It's up. almost amazing the dog didn't live yeah. as well. I have to say, against my better judgment, I side with the movie in this case. Really? Okay. I think it would have... Probably just been too fucking heavy. <laughs> Definitely for the time movie. it was made in. They this was early eighties. They didn't make movies with tragic endings. Not that little kid, especially. There's, he has this horrifying scene early in the movie where he has. And he's and he's one of the one of the few movie kids that's not immediately annoying. Yeah. So. The fact that he lives is like, if they killed him, yeah. one of the few movie kids that isn't annoying? Oh. He has this horrifying seizure in the car. It's amazingly acted. And <clears throat> Dee Wallace, playing the mother, is just hysterical. And we see all ends of it. Her going like almost completely crazy out of worry and concern for her son. Mm. And her being so exasperated by him completely whining and whining out of the situation as a kid would, as, as a kid would do yeah. in a baking car, that she just fucking flips out on him. And the, the kid is of an age where... Why can't you fix this? Yeah. Your mom. You're, you're the adult. You should be able to... Parents aren't... Or adults aren't helpless. Yeah. You know, adults fix things. Why can't you fix this? And the kid just is of an age where you can't get that. And the kid is the person that I can identify with. I keep on saying I identify most with Kujo, but the kid is scared of a boogeyman in his closet, but he's really scared because he can sense that his parents' marriage is really rocky. Yeah. And it's all being sort of pushed off to this imaginary fear. He and his mother face a genuine fear and are changed by it. And yeah, maybe it's a little Hollywood that they live through it and are better people because of what happened. I, I, but I, I will assume. take that over watching this like D. Wallace weeping over the corpse of her child as the credits roll would just be like, <laughs> "Good God, you guys!" Like, I don't know. Suicide rates increase <laughs> after release of Cujo the movie, <laughs> and Cujo, the character of Cujo, and I like that we kind of get a Jaws point of view on Cujo. If you read the book, we've spent some time in Cujo's head. He has limited understanding of the world. We understand more than he does, but that's that's one element I missed in the movie from. The book. I like the POV Cujo chapters. Cujo vision. Yeah. Cujo vision, sure. Yeah, as I like to call it. And I do think Where you actually get the dog's thought process. I mean, they, they do try to do the POV thing in the movie, but it's basically just looking through his eyes. Yeah. 
he does this to a smaller degree in a book, Gerald's Game. There's a mm-hmm. there's a dog that plays into that plot in a sort of horrifying way. But we get a couple of sub-chapters that are from the dog's point of view. And it sounds really silly to describe, but it's actually great to read. It's and I find it in, in a lot of different books. Christopher Moore does it in some of his books. Uh, there's a bunch of authors that... Uh, uh, eventually did it with Jaws. David Wong does it in uh, John Dies at the End, where it's dog's point of view chapters. Right. And they're always good fun. So, yeah, uh, I missed that. Um, because that's where we get his real character. Cujo is the nicest dog in the world. He gets he's chasing a rabbit, which is what dogs do. <laughs> yeah, and he's not even that excited about it. In, in the book, it actually says, uh, he, "I don't really want to go after it, but it's right there." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just standing there. He didn't even make an effort. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he gets bit by a bat, and you know, shakes it off. He has no idea that he's got this rabies illness. He has no idea that he's going crazy. And he's basically becoming the Jack Torrance of dogs. Yeah. He's slowly going crazy and doesn't understand why, or yeah. even recognize that he is, other than in a few lucid moments. And he's scared, and he's, you know, he, he can feel himself kind of falling apart. And, and it's, he's, that's it's, the, it's weird to get that insight from a character that is a dog. Yeah. And you can't, I don't know how they could have done it from the movie, but it just gives you an extra insight into the movies, into the deaths, you know? And that the dog isn't just this mean. <coughs> you know, killer. It's gone mad, and it's terrified. And it doesn't want to be mad. One of its last rational acts is recognizing the kid, that it's his dog. Yeah. Uh, uh, the son of the, the garage the owner. garage owner, yeah. But, and recognizes him, and it growls at him, and is about to go for him, and then realizes, I'm being a bad dog. Oh, right. I need I to can. run away now. Yeah. I need to run away now. And that's his last rational act before he yeah. finally succumbs to the rabies. And it confuses the kid, and the kid's worried about it, but yeah. that it, it's, yeah, it's the last rational act of a person, fall of a character falling into insanity. We can't get that perspective in the movie, and it's missed. Having read the novel, it enriches the movie. So I actually really think this is an unsung adaptation in a lot of ways. Yeah, they changed the book, but I think for the better. And as far as realizing that situation, like... They go there to get the car fixed, the car dies, they get there, the mechanic has been killed by this dog, and the dog is basically going to siege them. It's going to wait them out. Yep. And uh, And despite its insanity, it's still smart. It is very smart. And, uh, yeah, I I think it works exceptionally well. Uh, The rest of the movie works well, but the the book works way better. And that's why I say, for me, the movie only really starts to cook after that 50-minute point. And that may hurt its ranking for me. It's the last 40% of the movie. It's so good. And it's the first 60% that you uh, fast forward. There is stuff that might even have been skip-worthy, but I can't say enough good things about Dee it's, Wallace. It's, it's, sort of like watching, it's sort of like watching Jaws when you're only planning on being awake for an hour. Well, I'm going to fast-forward to the boat. <laughs> yeah, let's get the, let's get the start. Uh, Jan de Bont is one of his earlier cinematography jobs. And considering that a lot of it is set in a car, he gets a lot of dynamic shots. There's a really yeah, crazy... Actually, spinning camera shot where where it could have been it could have been really static and as boring as the first part of the movie right and uh, uh, he manages to find new angles and especially when uh, the mom starts to lose her shit he find he finds different camera angles all of a sudden the camera angles he was using when she was somewhat in control of of her emotions all of a sudden, the camera angles would change to slightly low. Yeah, yeah, you know, to a, a lower shot when she was starting to lose her shit. Yeah. It's a subtle thing, but it, it it works. 
And it's difficult to pull that off. Also, just for the record, and again, credit where credit is due to the filmmakers. They say do not work with children and do not work with animals. <laughs> well, the, the dogs, they use several dogs and some dog puppets, and that little kid are both fan-fucking-tastic. Yeah, the little and kid is very impressive. Chances are, when you're working with either of those, you're, you're rolling the dice. Both of them at the same time, chances are one of them is going to be problematic. Apparently, the Or biggest, just a dud. Apparently the biggest trick was to get the dog tail to stop from wagging. That was the biggest... <laughs> it was like the happiest dog. It was licking the makeup off its face and just loving it, loving life, looking too happy. Well, that fake blood is basically sugar, so... Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's like the, the, this mad dog seems like a simple pre- premise like Christine, but like Christine, I think that both the book and the movie get a lot of miles out of it. Well, a, a lot of the mileage just out of the book is is uh, your simple storyline that you get in most psycho killer uh, movies or stories is that the danger is next door. Yeah. The danger looks like, hey, it's the family dog. Yeah. The family and- dog had never hurt anybody. Uh-oh. It's... Quality Stephen King. Why don't you get Billy dressed? I'll take him into town with me. Hit the store before it gets all bought out. How'd you folks hold up in the storm? Big insurance day. Sorry to hear that. What's going on? It's death. Shut the doors! Shut the door! The only way we're gonna help ourselves is to seek rescue. Tie this around your waist. Or four. You'll let us know you got at least 300 feet. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the midst. What if you're wrong? Then I guess that joke would be on me. So uh, Frank Darabont has had a great deal of success in adapting Stephen King. Yeah, he seems to really get Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. uh, they get each other. Like Stephen King loves Frank's work on his behalf. Like yeah. uh, apparently, Darabont can be a handful. He can be a little bit difficult. But I look at his filmography and say, well, whatever he needs to do, just keep doing what you're doing. It seems to be working. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the Mist is one of the ones that kind of split people. It seemed like surprisingly B-grade from the man who did The Green Mile and, of course, most notably, The Shawshank Redemption. I sort of look at The Shawshank Redemption to sort of be the bright, sunny version to this sort of dark shadow, whereas the themes of Shawshank Redemption are hope, and hope being something that can transition you from horror to a mm. new life. The Mist is about despair. And I think and that, hopelessness. And hopelessness. It's about the bleak, bitter counterbalance to that. Yeah. And in that way, hope still, I will hope honestly st- and controversially say here, it is every bit the equal to Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> it is the dark shadow to the bright sun. I would definitely agree with you with that. And, and yet hope still exists <laughs> in it. Uh, at least in the story. In the story, correct. Um, basically, the less the, so in the movie. In the movie. <laughs> well, the movie does provide again. They change from the book, and I think we'll save the ending for a little bit. But I definitely do want to talk about it. We yeah, you the, have to. The movie changes the ending of the story in that it has one. In the original yep. novella of the Mist, we this is basically a roll of paper that have been left at this location, the supermarket, 
and he documents the occasions and leading up to the point where they leave the supermarket to try to escape the mist and the creatures within it. And what happens to them after the point, we are left to imagine. The movie just takes us a step forward and, and tells us where they go after they drive off. Um, basically, a freak storm hits this lake community in Maine, and uh, father and son... Really? Stephen King? Set in Maine. Stephen, I know, weird. Oh, okay. What are you going to do? A father and son go out to grab some groceries and emergency supplies... And shortly after arriving at the busy grocery, the town is enveloped in a mysterious fog. And not too long after that, after the, this mist arrives, it, we discover that it brings with it these horrible Lovecraftian monsters. Yeah, it's, one, it's a very Lovecraftian story. Each uh, creature more bizarre and horrendous than the last. Definitely other-dimensional. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I've, I've read of Stephen King's that was even... Close to his Lovecraftian as this one is. Have you read one of his his new books, uh, Revival? I haven't read Revival yet. It it's very Lovecraftian. Yeah. Uh, it's also kind of a Frankenstein story, but yeah. Uh, this one is it definitely falls under under the the category of Lovecraft. Absolutely, yeah. and I think that it's fairly obviously sort of wearing those influences. He's not trying to slip anything past us. No. Um. So we have the uh, basically the citizens of this small <coughs> town and there are people that we sort of types that we're familiar with you know sort of gruff speaking main drunks and religious the, zealots the local boys that work at the military base yeah. and uh, the, you know the church lady and blandly good or blandly bad people tend to wear white or black hats in Stephen King's universe and that's both good and bad but uh, yeah they, they tend to wear the white or black hat once the crisis starts yeah it, sort of like it it ramps up their personality <laughs> where they already were they're fairly normal when it's day to day but kind of annoying yeah. uh, or just generally nice and then it gets ramped up once once the shit hits the fan uh, so Darabont brought his sort of Typical crew of actors that he likes to work with. Yeah, Laurie Holden, you'll remember uh, from the first season of The Walking Dead and The oh, Majestic. Yes, yeah. um, she shows up here. William Sadler's an actor he likes to work with. Jeffrey DeMunn's an actor he likes to work with. Um, what's the actress's name who plays Carol in the Melissa McBride? Oh, I believe okay. this was her first big movie. And, uh, oh, really? Okay. The, that sort of got her, you know, into the. Eyes of Darabont, which got her on The Walking Dead, which she remains on to this day. You'll notice a lot of Darabont's people left the show fairly directly after he did. Yes. And I think that's some interesting loyalty there. Anyway, that's sort of a side view. It's, if, if you like Darabont, his whole world is represented here, and uh, the regulars show up and do the good work. Yeah, it was definitely a case of uh, I'm doing a movie and phone up my friends first. Absolutely. And the rest of the cast that we have worked out here, Andre Brower sort of shows up as an antagonistic neighbor. Yeah. And um, Thomas Jane is our lead. Thomas Jane is excellent in just about everything. Just I, uh, about everything. And yeah. I will agree with you there. Every now and then, I'm like, what happened, buddy? But I've, I've always thought that he's solid, you know. Mm -hmm. He's he's almost too good looking for his own good because people don't actually notice that he acts. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, um, and I also want to mention Toby Jones, who's a British actor who plays this oh, character yeah, Ollie. Ollie. Yeah. And I love that character and I love his performance. He's just a yeah, guy... He, he's another good example of somebody who's just a decent guy and the crisis hits and it ramps up his personality. 
I'm super decent yeah. now. He's in way over his head, but he does way better than even he expects he will do. He sort mm-hmm. of surprises himself and us how well he does, given the circumstances. Yeah, he, he's he's just a schlub. Yeah. He's a schlub. He, he's, what, assistant manager? Yeah. Of the this small-town supermarket, and all hell breaks loose. Dimension, demon dimensions open up yeah. outside, and he's one of the few that steps up. Yeah. Well, and really, for, for a storekeeper, all hell had already broke loose. A terrible storm came in. The power was out. Half the town is in your store trying the to... The tills aren't trees. working. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's already having the worst fucking day of his life. And then monsters show up. <laughs> yeah. right? But he's still, like, just he's still He still problem. fucking steps yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and the uh, getting getting shit done. That's what you need in an assistant manager. Indeed, and of course the performance that we're we're not mentioning uh, enough so far is Marcia Gay Harden. Oh yeah, because uh, she has a tricky role to my mind as this religious zealot, and her name, sorry, Mrs. Carmody, could easily be an utterly forgettable two-dimensional. Uh, it's a tough sell. Yeah. It's a it's... tough sell. Not only is she, like, crazy over-the-top religious that you almost have a hard time believing in, like, the dumbest of small towns in the States. Yeah. But that she has enough magnetism and she's able to exploit this scenario could, of terror you, you that could, she actually convinces people and talks them onto her crazy. You could easily see her, well, and she pretty much is by the by the uh, last scene we see her in. Uh, a cult leader. A cult leader, yeah. And a very successful one. Yeah. That was her calling, apparently. And uh, just exploiting the people's fears. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the main hitch of the story, which I remember reading at a young age and identifying with, and identify with even more now as a father of two, is this father trying to, as much as possible, protect his son from this horrifying scenario. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that scene in the book which was sort of Darabont's key to sort of solving the riddle of the how do you end this movie. There's a very important scene, I think, about halfway through the movie where his son wakes up in the middle of the night and they have a conversation and he promises his son that he will not allow his son to be eaten by a monster. Oh, yeah, yeah. He swears to him that no matter what happens, he will be spared that fate. And he keeps his promise. <laughs> much no. much to the chagrin of many of the moviegoers that went Indeed. to see this in the theater. Correct. Because, uh, yeah, this movie in the theater upset a lot of people. And uh, you want to talk about why? Should we jump to the ending already? Or um, is there more you want to see? I've outlined the plot, basically. Um, yeah, I, I could easily see... This is, this is another good example of Stephen King looking at... Uh, it's a classic horror trope of which is worse, the monsters or the people in here yeah, the monsters within or the monsters without and it's not subtle in that at all not at all no that's okay. that's and marcia gay harden is is instrumental in that but yeah. but again like you said her performance is is uh she she, she manages to make it, it creepy she manages to make it creepy but three-dimensional enough that uh you don't automatically just relegate her to like from the very first scene she walks in oh that's a bad guy yeah I almost believe her more on the screen than I do on the page. That's yeah. how, that's how much of a compliment that I'm going to pay to Marcia Harden here. Yeah, she does a wonderful work in this movie, uh, and it would not be easy to do because this is a villain that twirls her mustache. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, and in the way that only Stephen King can so enjoy yeah, tying all the atheists to the train tracks. <laughs> 
and like immediately going to the most evil thing. We want to sacrifice. Let's kill the child. Yeah, sacrifice a child. That's what? The, that's <laughs> the first big sort of like proclamation she makes, right? Her loving God will be satiated with the death of this child. Kill the child of the guy who I don't like. Yeah, basically, and it's a, yeah. <laughs> but the the ending is really the the stunner on this one, especially between the book and the and the movie. In the book. It ends, they've headed off into the mist, everybody in the car is asleep, they lost a few people getting into the car, notably Ollie. Ollie, sadly. Uh, Dude, <laughs> but you need those deaths that you feel, like they can't all just be random folks that get taken away by a tentacle. And you not just like, the bad people or yeah. the random people have to die, you have to have a likable one that yeah. goes as well, otherwise the stakes are nothing. Yeah. Uh, and they wander off into the mist, and they're trying to get a certain distance away. They're, like, randomly picking a target on the map to head towards, and uh, uh, everybody in the car is asleep, and he he's fiddling around with the radio, trying to pick up anything, yeah. and he thinks he hears talking, and he thinks he hears the word hope. And that's where... <laughs> that's the that's the ends. That's the entirety of the hope in yeah. in... in uh, uh, in the actual story, and then it's cruelly taken away in the movie version. Yeah, well, basically, after driving through the fog, confirming that indeed his wife had passed away, which he kind of knew, she didn't was not prepared for what was coming, and the main the main window of their house had well, been shattered by the yeah, storm. Yeah, they, they didn't actually find a body or anything, but the house has obviously been... Anything on the outside had no problem getting into her. The main yeah. window of the house was open. So, yeah, that sucks. And then we see... Some of the best rendering of, of, for lack of a better word, Lovecraftian pardon, monsters. Pardon the extra noise. And That's okay. Fix your drink. Uh, Adding we, to the flagon of chuckles. <laughs> we see creatures whose legs lift up into the skyline and are obscured by cloud. We see creatures that have big, flocks of other creatures living underneath their underbelly. Yeah, those big tall bastards remind me of the, uh, the original uh, walker tanks in the uh, War of the Worlds. Right, like that's basically what they are. You can't see the top of them because of the mist. But. Like the the scale of their adversary, like and this is described. One of these creatures is described in the book, but actually seeing it in the movie, it's like this incredible. Oh my God, what are we up against? Well, even even to the point where the the uh, uh, the impact tremors that they used in Jurassic Jurassic Park, Park yeah, <laughs> to to just kind of uh, like we've message been... the scale of this. Thing. We were fighting weird tentacles and acid-spitting spiders, but what could we possibly do against that? Yeah, and and like the further they drive, the, those last there's just nothing, until finally they run out of gas, and Thomas Jane takes out a pistol, as agreed upon with the following survivors, and executes everybody in the car. But he only has. Son. But he only there's five people in the car. There's only four bullets. Yeah. So he. Executes the older couple in the back seat, and his, and his and son, his and son, Laurie Holden, and Laurie Holden, and then Nothing he's out left. of bullets, so he walks into the mist. Yeah, and I think we're even downplaying as fucking horrible as that is. They make a point that his son wakes up at the last second before yep. he pulls the trigger, just in to, time to see the to, barrel, to, to, to like maybe process that he was about to be shot by his own father, and that would have been a horrendous ending in of itself. Brutal, like the, the the Cujo ending that we talked about. Like everybody would be devastated. Yeah, 
But then... But then Frank Darabont, prick that he is, pulls out the one-two punch. The f- mist is receding. The army was but a kilometer behind them. Not Had even. He, he, li- he literally... Moments. He walks out of the out of the car to walk into the mist and be taken by the monsters and a tank rolls by. Right. He just got out of the car. They were literally a hundred yards up the road. In fact, the noise of the army, he probably just mistook. He thought one was one of those giant... Yeah. Like, everything goes about as bad for him as it could possibly. And he's left screaming, completely having lost it's his It's left mind. with that crane shot, and you see this giant column of National Guard come in, and the mist is receding, and he's on his knees, screaming at the sky, this horrible crane shot. Just yeah. like, oh, and the credits. And I get Oh my, my god! Like that, people were outraged, and people were like, "Like that, that lost the movie for people. They couldn't fucking believe they yeah. went there." My I my wife back. hated that ending. Yeah. She hates bleak endings like that. Oh, I had a I, I watched this with a person, and she was like shaking with anger afterwards. <laughs> she couldn't quite admit it, but she was very upset by the movie. I loved the ending, even though it was horrible. Yeah, but it was the right ending. Yeah, uh, Stephen King himself, in uh, when he was asked, if he had thought the, of it, he would have wrote it. Yeah, he, that's exactly what he said about it. Yeah, what do you think about Frank's ending? That he, if I'd have thought of it, it would have been in the book. And I don't know if there's a bigger compliment he could have paid Frank Darabont. No. And I have to go full circle back to what I said about Shawshank is about hope, and this movie is about despair. When he gives in to despair, and pulls that trigger, and goes out to kill himself. That's when the sun finally breaks through the mist, right? Yeah. It's the reverse of Shawshank. It, For Shawshank, it, the darkness is all the time in Shawshank, and he gets that bit of light at the end, but he always had the hope. And, and here's where that analogy works better with the movies than it does with the books. Because in the book, you had that little twinge of hope yeah. where he's fucking with the radio. Frank Darabont takes that away. Yeah. Takes it away utterly. And it's nothing but despair. Yeah. Hope is gone. There's no hope in this movie. So It left in the second act. Yeah, I would say, like, Shawshank and The Mist would be a brilliant double feature. Watch The Mist first. <laughs> and Shawshank will so be you the, don't kill yourself yeah, afterwards. And Shawshank will be the, uh, the antidote. The other thing I want to say, and I do think we should wrap this up pretty quickly here. If you can, watch... The Mist in black and white. If you get the deluxe director's edition of the movie, they haven't changed any of the scenes, but you can watch the movie in black and white. I did not know that. And I actually think that the CG looks better in the black and white version, and it doesn't take anything away from it. He Darabont's always wanted to do black and white. In fact, when he was originally trying to get Walking Dead made, his way to get around the violence was that he was going to do it in black and white. So it would be violent, but it wouldn't be as visceral as... Well, the blood would be black. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I love Frank Darabont, and I love Stephen King, and therefore, consequently, I love The Mist. Is there anything else you would like to say before we move on? Yeah, I would say that's a, a bulletproof uh, combo, Stephen King and Darabont, uh, if it weren't for Dreamcatcher, but that's for a different episode. But Darabont wasn't on board for Dreamcatcher. Uh, word is that he has the rights for The Long Walk, which that would be interesting. What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is church all right? Why, Judd? I have no reasons. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was a 
a secret. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts that's not thought of. Paramount Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. So uh, every now and then Stephen King likes to branch out. He'll do, doesn't all have to be horror, you know? In this case, he's going to do a light family comedy for us. <laughs> Not at all. Um, it involves a toddler getting hit by a semi in the first act. Yes, this is Pet Cemetery, which is the story of the very unfortunate Creed family. Uh, led by the very stupid, considering he's a doctor, Lewis Creed. Here yeah. we have a protagonist who continually... Refuses to learn lessons from his circumstances. Yes, he is. He makes the worst choices <laughs> consistently ever. Now that's bad and disastrous for him and his family, but for viewers and readers, it's actually quite fun. I think Pet Cemetery is one of those Stephen King novels like it, where like every chapter makes a business of reminding you this is a fucking horror novel. <laughs> so I'm gonna talk about some horrible shit. And uh, it's inspired, it's sort of semi-autobiographical. In the character here, Lewis Creed is a doctor at a university, but King taught at a university and had a house very much like the Creed house on a road very much like the road he talks about, Mm -hmm. which was frequented by big rig drivers and that it was very common for that little stretch of road for pets to die. So common, in fact, that within walking distance of his house was a pet cemetery. All of this stuff completely plucked from his life up into the the fact that his daughter's cat was killed by one of the trucks. He takes it a step further in the book, and as you mentioned, the adorable young toddler of the family is killed by a truck. And having learned the evil secret of this... And it's, a, it's an awful sequence. Yeah. Ugh. Well, it's just, uh, both in the book and in the movie... It's, it's actually worse in the movie just because you get to see it. Yeah. But you get the privilege of seeing it. Yeah. It's every you don't actually see nightmare. the kid get creamed, but... Uh, <sighs> Even Stephen King will say when asked what genuinely scares him would be the idea of something bad happening to his kid. Yeah. And Pet Cemetery deals with this <coughs> dead on. Uh, so it's not a happy number. And uh, much like Cujo we discussed earlier, it's vicious and bloody and it does not let up it does not leave us necessarily in a happy place no it doesn't mean it's bad or anything like that but um but it's definitely not a happy ending yeah this is this is this is straight up hard horror and uh you know you kind of have to be prepared for that and when i saw no, sorry <laughs> talking about this movie i need a little more, alcohol i need a little more rye well Fuck i have you, to liver. say i have to say when i saw this movie in the late 80s as a young kid, it terrified me. Yeah. It terrified me. Um, watching it now through the lens of sort of, you know, almost 30 years later or whatever it is, um, I see that there's some creaks and moans and I see that it's very 80s, mm-hmm. but the shit that's scary is still scary. And, and uh, whoever designed the look of the deadfall yeah. and the pet cemetery itself 
the deadfall you had to go over to get to the pet cemetery. Uh, nailed it. Yeah. Absolutely, like, I'm sorry, I would have hit the deadfall and go, nope, fuck this. Yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, it's it's strong Stephen King. And it's definitely main Stephen King's world. And the, he adapted this, this movie himself, and... He has a small cameo in I it. think this is one of the first ones he adapted himself. He did Silver it? Bullet as well. Oh, okay, this. yeah. And he did Cat's Eye. He wrote the screenplay for Cat's Eye. Okay. But, uh, Those are both fairly minor, though. Yeah. And uh, so it's obviously faithful to the book and, uh, you know, pulls no punches. And I guess maybe that's what I was more used to in the 80s was that this movie, especially considering it deals to violence on children really does not pull any punches. No, it we really don't, doesn't. We don't see Gage get hit by the truck, but we see enough, you know, there's his little booty rolling around in the... It's, uh, in mostly, the it's mostly the horror on the look of, uh, well, it, Denise Crosby and... Dale Midkiff plays Dale Midkiff. It's we most, have him screaming. Mostly the horror of them uh, realizing that the kid is... Dead. Is going to go... No, he's headed for the road. Right. Where they're still trying to catch him. Yeah. And they both sell it incredibly. Yeah, unbelievably. Uh, that's that's one of the most horrific moments of the entire movie. Yeah. Is when they see the kid is running into the road, and they're going to they try can't. to catch. They, they can't get. It. They trying. have to try, but they can't get him. Yeah, and they probably know from the second they start running, but they have to start running. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, yeah. The other one is the very viscerally awful. Uh, killing of Fred Gwynn. Yeah. Uh, the his friendly character. neighbor across the street. The friendly guy who gets his cheeks cut open and his Achilles tendon cut yeah. and, like, with a scalpel by this little chucky motherfucker. Two things <laughs> I will say about that is A, he is the catalyst for all of the horror that happens. Yeah. If he had meant to manage to not mention the supernatural Indian burial ground, uh, none of this terrible shit would happen. So, in a way, he wrote his own fate. Yeah. The other thing is I will say about Fred Gwynn. <coughs> I will say that he completely is incredibly even over the top in this movie, and I love it 100%. There's, like, no, there's nothing to not love about Fred Gwynn. It's, it's, he's, he's pushing the main accent pretty hard, yeah. and like he just there, there, he, there's a lusciousness with which he you know, will give his exposition, and there's, he is responsible for there's, exposition. There's no way you could not like this next-door neighbor. Yeah. You would want him to be your neighbor, and you would drink beer with him on his porch, and you would like him. And it's a bummer that he gets and just, killed. Right? Yeah, listen to him say "ah" uh, all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's fine. It's completely fine. You, you'll see variations of that character in a lot of King stories. And I think that I'm always picturing some variation of Fred Gwynn because of this role. Fair enough. <laughs> so, I like that. Uh, interesting things. and I mean, it's in the book, but uh, I've often thought of this parallel because of the movies there is a character i'm gonna forget the name of a kid was killed the first day lewis was at work uh oh yes hit by a car and the ghost of that kid since lewis had tried to save him sticks around to try and talk some sense into lewis mm -hmm. and it's weird because he's really <coughs> grisly like his skull is broken open and he's bleeding you can see his brain yeah, yeah but he is the comic relief of the movie he reminds me very much of Griffin Dunn in American Werewolf in London. How this spectral figure oh, shows yeah. up looking increasingly grosser throughout the movie. Yeah. But is counterbalanced, sort of like, he's comedy in a lot of ways. Like, you're not listening to me, buddy, I'm here to help. 
Um, and he does everything that he... I'm trying does. to save you from all of your dumb decisions. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think you'll have to reconcile, both in the book and in the, t- in, in the, the movie. It's like, he keeps on doing the wrong thing. And if he does the right thing, the movie ends. Right? But he keeps doing the wrong thing so the movie can get to its inevitable... The poor, sort the of poor son of a bitch is a slave to the author. Yeah. And uh, at some point, you just have to say he's lost his mind, which I think by the last act, you can, you can go... Definitely. By the time he's dragging his wife up to the... Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You just... You have learned no lessons. Yeah. Um, he's absolutely snapped at that point. Yeah. He has no friends anymore. His family's all dead. Yeah. And He's going to get his family back even if they're... Zombies. Or yep. whatever the hell they are. And that's the other thing. I don't know if there's a dustier sort of horror cliche than the old Native burial ground. <laughs> and he has gone to that well. Like, The Shining comes to mind. And yeah. Like, uh, so, you would sort uh, of... Desperation kind of... It's kind of eye-rolling in some respects. But it, it's creepy in the book. And it's creepy enough executed in the movie. And basically, we have a thinly disguised zombie movie, to my mind. Yes, the, yeah. The zombies are talking are a little bit more personal about it's, their evil that they do. Well, the thing is... It, it, they it, are revenants. It starts off a little more innocuous than your average cursed Indian burial ground. Because nobody's using it to resurrect people. Right. Kids are using it to resurrect pets. Well, and not and even the pets, that. The pets he, are not right yeah. when they come back, but they're not killing people. They're not evil. They're not. They don't have the uh, the brain capacity to be evil. Maybe. I, uh, and the actual titular pet cemetery is benign. You have to go past it to the secret place to bury yes. your thing, right? The, to the the spirit circle. But it seems enough people in the neighborhood seem to know the secret. That it's there's a there's a history to it. That's the other thing I want to talk about in this movie. There are two flashback sequences that I found disturbing as a kid. One of which I still find disturbing to this day. The story that uh, Fred Wynn tells about the time that uh, they did use the cemetery to resurrect a, a man. Oh yeah, and yeah. And we see him holding the calf of a child in his hand and smearing blood on his face was about as fucked an image as I remember seeing in a horror movie when I was a kid. Yeah, is that calf attached to anything? No, it's just a little kid's yeah. half a leg, and it's not even drawn attention to, but it's there. Mary Lambert pulls no punches, like a uh, female director, but she you know, she didn't hide from the, the ugliness of it. Yeah, and that's and the, another thing to... to uh, no, sorry, I'm, finish your point. I'll the other scene that I wanted to talk about, the flashback that I find horrifying, is Zelda, the... Denise Crosby, who's the wife, tells a story of her sister who had this horrible yes. bone cancer and she was left to take care of her and the night that she finally went crazy and died. And, and she basically did nothing but scream for months on end and Zelda, when she wasn't unconscious. It's a troubling chapter in the book. The movie, like, that was pure nightmare juice. Like... It is and absolutely it's, and it's, fucking horrifying. And it's, again, horrible slice of life horror that Stephen King does well. Like, we were talking about the, the psycho next door. The nice yeah. guy next door is the psycho. This is real horror. Dealing with a family member's terminal illness. Yeah. That's horror. Yeah. 
and the fact that we set up that the that his wife is predisposed to not deal with death well because she encountered it so horribly at a young age. Yep. She then loses her child and is basically Shuts down. rendered catatonic. Yeah. But you understand why. It's not that she's a weak character, it's that she's a damaged one. Yeah. She's already And it only gets fucking worse. Yeah, she she's already been to this rodeo and it did not work out well for her. Yeah. But this this is also an unusual movie in that a woman directed yeah. an 80s horror movie. <clears throat> I'm hard-pressed to think of any other examples before this. Yeah. Uh, at least to this uh, uh, box office level. Yeah. Like, this kind of budget. This was... I don't know who chose her. But uh, it was a solid choice. She did a good job. She, yeah, she did a very good job. It was... But some could, at least at the time, say it was a, a risky choice because you didn't... You, Female directors in the 80s sometimes did romantic comedies, but usually did nothing. Yeah. It was the project that we'd eventually get around to, but not really ever. Mm, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, She also did the sequel, which is unfortunate, because I remember thinking it was terrible. But uh, maybe that will have to be revisited at some point. Yeah, I seem to remember seeing it on HBO way back in the day and not being impressed at all. Um, Not because of the direction, just because it was stupid. Apparently there is another remake of this in the pipeline. They're going to do another feature on it sooner or later. I have the feeling that in the next ten years or so, we're going to sort of see another boom in Stephen King adaptations. For good or bad, we will we'll have to wait and I can, see. But... I can only guess that uh, a modern adaptation of this is going to be less brutal about the child murdering. I really do agree, and whether that's and good that's going to take the sting out of it. Yeah, whether that's good or bad, we can discuss. But uh, yeah, that's ninety percent of the horror of this story. So that to me uh, yeah. probably means it's not going to be that good. It's a good movie, but it's not one that I revisit a lot because of how ugly it is. So uh, yeah, it is that it doesn't it doesn't flinch from real life horror. There's supernatural elements of it, but that's secondary. Yeah. The real-life horror is the loss of a child. And that's the most horrible thing that Stephen King can think of. Yeah. He almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs, and the fibula in the right leg is fractured, too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery Spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. 
so Stephen King holds misery pretty personal. He's one that he's particularly fond of, and it's one that he kind of identifies with, and that he has a interesting relationship with his fan base sometimes. And it's one of the rare occasions when he has a, uh, a main character that's a writer. Yeah, we never, almost never see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, he had this experience with Rob Reiner, who got the rights to do The Body, which was adapted into Stand By Me. Yeah. And at that time, he did it on a fairly low budget, fairly modestly. And when he showed Stephen King the results, Stephen King was brought to tears by it. The Body was one of the more personal novels that he'd done. It was basically stories out of his childhood. Yeah. And, uh, you know... And a fairly simple story. You don't need that big a budget to make that one. No. But, I mean, it was well executed. A lot of child actors, period piece. And so he had a lot of trust in Rob Reiner. So when someone comes knocking for misery, and at this point the, the, the rights to the movies are being sold before the books are even published, mm-hmm. if Rob Reiner wants to do it and William Goldman's going to adapt it, hell's to the yes. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's all on board. That's, and he can that's, feel safe. That's, that's an A-team right there. And it, as evidenced by some of the main major decisions that they made. The first thing they got was their Annie Wilkes, the antagonist of the movie. And they cast Kathy Baker, or Kathy Bates, Bates pardon yeah. me, Kathy Bates from the stage. She hadn't really established herself as a... Yeah, this was her her, uh, uh, her big film debut. Her, yeah, her first big Hollywood experience. So, they that, like, and that was a crucial character to get right, and they knew that she would be amazing. The real trick was finding their counterpart... Who was going to be the hero? Who was going to be the, quote, star? The, the name Who was going to be the Stephen King? Yeah. And there's a stage adaptation being mounted right now where Bruce Willis is taking the role. But I think that the really, really uh, interesting thing about James Caan taking the role, and he actually mentions this in the documentary on the disc, is that he's a guy known for his energy, for his sort of vibrance. And, he, and he's laying in a bed. And he is strapped to a bed for almost the entire movie. Yeah. And the performance is largely, you know, his expressions, his suffering, his dealing with his number one fan, who's also his lifeline. So, I think it's actually my favorite James Conn performance. I well, actually, he had to channel all that physical energy into... His face. <laughs> into his face. He had nothing else going on. Yeah. <laughs> And he's being—he's playing torment. He's playing drug addiction. He's playing, you know, uh, faking the pain that he's in for large sequences of the movies where he's not he, taking his pain he's, medication. He's, he has to act like he's not hurting when he clearly is. He's faking liking Annie Wilkes and going along with it. You know, like he's faking having Stockholm syndrome, basically. Yeah. And I will say that this is another case where the changes that they made for the movie from the book, I think were good choices. I agree. The main plot, to those who don't know, and I don't know who's listening to this who wouldn't know, but uh, if you don't, a famous writer named Paul Sheldon, who sort of made his fortune in these sort of dime store romance novels, yeah. a series about this... Serialized. Yeah. A series about this character, Misery Chastain, and all of her romances and misadventures. He has finally decided he's made enough money on the popular stuff, and he wants to write something for himself. So simultaneous to the uh, eminent publishing of the final Misery novel, he has finished his new autobiographical book about his life as a kid. In a way, it's him, his stand by me, or his body in a lot of ways. But his first time. 
and upon finishing that, he drives, unfortunately, through a snowstorm uh, to deliver the new product to his publisher. And en route, he suffers a terrible car accident. He has been followed, unbeknownst to him, by his number one stalker fan, Annie Wilkes. And he wakes up in her snow, clothes, sort of snow cut-off cab or house in the in the wilderness, and slowly comes to realize that he's she's not just his savior, but she's keeping him prisoner. Yeah. And uh, in order to satisfy her, uh, she eventually, upon finding out much to her chagrin that misery has been killed, she is going to instruct him to write another misery novel and undo all of the wrongs that he has done. The writer is taken prisoner by his number one fan, and his number one fan is out of her goddamn mind. Yes, and in a very interesting way that Kathy Bates very righteously won the Oscar for. Absolutely. Um, Because she's not only uh, got psychopathic, definite psychopathic tendencies, there's a huge element to her character that humanizes her to the point where you almost feel sorry for her at times uh is she's severely manic depressive yeah and kathy bates really brings that to the table um it's Huge there in the character on valleys the, yeah, yeah it's it, it's really brought to the page in in the book as well but she brings it to life um in a way that you rarely see manic depression portrayed in a movie uh I have some experience with manic depression, not my own, yeah. uh, but <clears throat> uh, she really brings it. At the times when she's down, she's absolutely disconnected, Yeah, walks in, delivers the food, does what she has to do, and walks out. And then when she's manic, she's either angry, crazy, fucking scary angry, or she's just... So happy that so she's... So delighted, scared. there's practically cartoon bluebirds landing on her shoulders. Yeah. You know... But you don't know which Annie's going to walk through the door at any moment. And that's the scariest part of the entire the entire story. Yeah. Is, yeah, you don't know which one's coming through the door. And that's a big aspect of Manic Depression, which she really brought. There is something strangely funny about Annie Wilkes, too, at times. There's a strange formality to her speech and her utter refusal to use swear words. Her, her, yeah, her her uh, uh, swear substitutions. Yeah. You dirty birdie! You yeah. dirty birdie! Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's the sort of thing that you'd be tempted to laugh, but if you laughed, you just fucked up real bad, yeah. right? It's one of these people where she doesn't understand anything but her own backyard, but you better adapt to her world, because if not, you're, you're going to suffer. Yeah, you're more scared of her screaming dirty birdie at you than you would be of a giant biker dude screaming die motherfucker and wielding a pool cue. Now, I'd rather deal with that dude than her. Now, the two major changes that they made, and again, I think they're for the better, are the level of physical cruelty to which Paul Sheldon is subjected to at the hands of Annie Wilk yeah. in the novel, and... The time that we spend with the character of Buster the Sheriff. Richard Farnsworth plays him in, in the movie. Who's just, it, you know, your typical like lovable, yeah. old, you like small him right town away. sheriff. You, know. you like him right away and you're given no reason not to like him. And they even give him a, a feisty wife who doesn't even show up in the novel. At no, all. she's not there a at all. complete invention. Uh, Frances uh, Sternhagen plays her. I really like that actress. She was in The Mist as well. Yes, um, yeah. 
So uh, they have this great dynamic. They're like they should have retired by now, but Buster just loves being a sheriff so much, and she well, know, and, he, and he loves everybody in the town. He yeah. knows everybody in the town. Everybody knows him. He's the trusted guy, and she likes to help out the sheriff because it gets her an excuse to hang out with her husband. And they are so charming, and consequently, yeah, oh my god, they're just lovable. Yeah, and consequently, when Richard Farnsworth's character gets taken out. It's dev- it's it's way more devastating yeah, than it is in the book. It's horrible <laughs> because we like him so much, and he's done everything right, and he solved the mystery. And I just wish that he'd called his wife before he paid Annie that visit, or he'd called her back up instead of going in himself. Because yeah. even when he realizes Annie has the writer, I don't think he realizes what it is he's walking in. That's the thing. He's still a small town sheriff and doesn't really believe that that kind of badness can happen here. It's just, oh, she's a little, she's out of control. She's never been quite right in the head, but I can deal with her. (laughs) Not so much. Misery was one of the first horror movies that I saw in the theater. It was an R-rated movie that I managed to get into when I wasn't quite old enough to at the time, I think. And I remember thinking, oh, this is more of a thriller than a horror movie. Until that shotgun blast goes through Buster. Yeah. And then I felt, that is horrible. And this is is easily the, the most critically acclaimed Stephen King movie until uh, Shawshank and Green Mile came yeah. out, um, and it was it was sort of an eye opener, I think, for a lot of poo pooers of Stephen King's work. Yeah, uh, that oh shit, he I can actually write serious drama, serious like yeah, but he, imagine, he he always has been, but you just were ignoring it because it was in the horror section of the bookstore. Imagine that same scene, though, where instead of being that old, charming guy who loves the community and doesn't quite realize what he's stepping into, it's a young hothead who gets winged by a shotgun and then run over by a riding lawnmower. Yeah. I think it's much better handled in the movie. It is. You definitely... It definitely ups the stakes for the movie because... It's less absurd. It's less absurd and also he's such a charming... Guy, no, nothing bad could happen to yeah. him, right? He's right? gonna save the day. Right? He's gonna save the day. They do a similar bait and switch with uh, the Denise Crosby character in the Pet Cemetery, mm-hmm. and that the ghost guides her to the house to come and help Lewis, and she shows up after that long journey and is immediately killed. Yeah, <laughs> right. <coughs> I mean, they also do that with Fred Gwynn, making Miss Charming is humanly possible just so it hurts that much more when they gut him horribly yeah so but i also think that just taming down the violence and making the violence more personal and more frightening yeah so instead of cutting off bits of his fingers and one of his thumbs you know she threatens to light him on fire there's a whole scene after she's burned his manuscript where she starts yelling at him and as she's casually yelling at him she's throwing this lighter fluid all over him and like He's as up for grabs as that book was to be burned, you know? Because she very, very easily could let him up. Because she's in a manic yeah. craze right now. And so we don't need to see this visceral violence. It's all in James Caan. And with the visceral violence, we do get to see some of it. That's one difference they make. It, it, he does, She doesn't chop his foot off. She hobbles him yes. with the freaking... Uh, a plank of wood, the and plank a of wood, hammer. and the sledgehammer, and you see just a split second of the first ankle getting rubberized, and it is absolutely awful. We were talking about this earlier. It's it's similar to that the wrench hit in Super. Yeah, it's just it's grotesque to watch, and you just you, it's a very visceral. 
oh my god, no! It's, it's, it's not like, as it's violent like, as the book, and it's more violent than the book. Yeah, it's more horrible to watch. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, His legs have spent all this time mending. He's been getting better and able to move around. And then so she shatters it. She re-breaks <clears throat> his legs, A, to punish him, and B, to keep him hobbled. Yeah. It's fucking brutal. It's it's like it's like watching like when a football player has a nasty break and they keep replaying the clip over and over <sighs> and over on the highlights. And it's just, oh, Jesus, stop that. That's that one. But fortunately, the filmmakers only show it for a split second. Well... Rob Reiner chooses to cut it yeah. right at the perfect moment. But great manipulation scenes. There's also this devastating scene where we have seen over a period of weeks that James Caan has not been taking his pain medication and has been hoarding it and hoarding it. And he's been working on the uh, on the novel, being a dutiful good slave. And he's also working on his escape plan. And he has enough meds that he tries to drug her wine, and she absentmindedly spills her wine. And it's this absolutely devastating moment that he can't allow to read on his face. Yeah. I've he been just working on this plan there. for weeks, and oh fuck. And he just has to sit there and take it. <clears throat> and finish this romantic candlelit dinner with this fucking crazy person. Amazing scene. Yeah, yeah. And just <laughs> the despair that's just behind his eyes. Yeah. Like, I've been working on this for how long? And now now it's done. Everybody's all about James you Con- tripped. From, from The Godfather. And he is iconic as Sonny in, yeah. in The Godfather. But I really do think that this is his best performance. And as much as, you know, Kathy Bates deservedly won an Oscar, she was equaled by her co-star. And that's a big reason as to why the movie works. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm glad that it wasn't Bruce Willis for the movie, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that would look like. Don't want to. Let's just have... Christian Stewart as Annie Wilkes as well. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Misery? Uh, there was, but I forgot it. <laughs> That's miserable. I don't know. I, I thought that last bit where he thinks he sees Annie Wilkes was a really great way that Rob Reiner threw that in. It wasn't really a part of the book. Not necessarily, no. He's damaged, but still writing, right? As yeah, a... still damaged, but uh, that I think that was a really good way of showing that he's scarred. He's not getting over this anytime soon. He's got a little bit of PSD. Yeah. PTSD, sorry. His agent's played actually by Lauren Bacall. Um, oh, Lauren Bacall, yes. Sort of a big get, uh, sort of cameo small role in this. And yes, she, because she's being a dutiful agent, is asking him whether he would be willing to write a non-fiction book about what happened to him with Annie Wilkes. And he says no, and as he's saying no, we see this waitress approaching, and the waitress takes on the guise of Annie Wilkes, and it's sort of his goodbye. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a nice little subtle way of showing that he's not over this in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. This is going to follow him for a long time. The actual physical confrontation, which I thought was what you were going to talk about, I always found interesting in that it is really brutal. I mean, Annie Wilkes has deserved some hits. She needs to get some payback. But as he's putting the burning pages of the novel into her mouth and slamming her head against the floor, it's pretty fucking crazy. Like, it's, <laughs> it's no holds barred fucking uh, uh, fight for survival. You call it excessive except for she's earned this and anything he can do to her is not going to equal what she's done to him. It's you'd, just like you'd call he's got to kill her. You'd he's call it excessive... Her. Except for the fact there's nothing Hollywood about this fight. No. There's nothing choreographed about this fight. This is a fight for 
base survival. And anytime he moves his legs, he's in agony. Yeah. So it's not a fair fight. He has to cheat. And good on him. Uh, yeah. Good movie. Kenslin lost his daughter. The afterlife became his obsession. You probably want to hear all about our haunted history. But after years of searching, he no longer believes. So you're saying there's no such thing as ghosts? I'm saying I've never seen one. Nothing would make me happier than to experience a paranormal event. Gerald Olin, manager of the Dolphin. If I can just get the key to 1408. In the 95 years of the hotel's existence, there have been 56 deaths in 1408. 56. No one's ever lasted more than an hour. The first victims to Kevin O'Malley. Cut his own throat. Do not stay in that room. is taken from a collection called Everything's Eventual, a collection of short stories. It's the longest one of the bunch. Yeah, it, it almost reaches novella standards, but basically John Cusack plays a writer and professional skeptic who's suffered a loss in his past. This character... Oh no, a writer that's... Yes, a writer that suffered a loss and is very that's weird. Didn't we have a, a Didn't we have a story about <laughs> similar to that from Stephen King? There's got to be at least one or two in there somewhere. Hmm. Uh, actually, the funniest permutation of this, uh, if you have a chance to listen to it, is when we did the review of Sometimes They Come Back. Because in a way, that's every Stephen King movie sort of thrown into a blender. Um, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. God damn, I never thought about that. Um, anyway. That's going to keep me up tonight. <laughs> 1408 is, I kind of think of it as The Shining Junior. In that this is not a haunted hotel. It is a haunted hotel room. But it is sort of treated with the same almost pomp and circumstance as The Shining. And that we get this rich history of this hotel It's room. almost beyond a haunting. Uh, I wouldn't even call it's it... It's an evil room. Yeah, it's almost it, 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 like the room is a portal to hell. Yeah. It, it, it's it beyond mere, violence it's and death. It's beyond mere ghosts. Yeah. It's some sort of catalyst for violence and death. You just... Being in that room and is bad And despair and hopelessness and interestingly the, the movie stars uh john cusack and sam jackson sam jackson's character is playing a polar opposite as the described character from the story who's a sort of small posh british man yeah uh, but uh weird know, choice but it's fine he delivers his exposition fine it's it was also, also it's also during a period in movie making where you if you could get Sam Jackson, you got Sam Jackson. It's also interesting in that uh, later this year we're going to be seeing Cell, an adaptation of Stephen King's novel Cell, starring John Cusack and Sam Jackson. Oh, really? So, not the same director, but they're the two of them are reunited for another Stephen King, which is kind of curious. Okay. Um, there's no reason that Sam Jackson should or should not take this role. His role is basically to deliver the... Sam exposition. Jackson will take any role. Yeah. And I'm happy to have him there. Don't get me wrong. I'm always happy to see him. He does him a fine there. job, Absolutely. yes. Absolutely. But basically, he's here to tell us this room is evil, and here are all he's, the He's why. the exposition dump. Yeah. 
And uh, it sort of follows that sort of Shirley Jackson thing in that we learn a lot about the room before we actually get to the room itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Shining Junior. I do agree that, that hotel rooms as a place for horror are pretty good in that they've got this vaguely icky used quality to them. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. When you're in, you... Especially with the set design in this movie. Yeah. But anytime you're in a hotel room, it's it's been cleaned and prepped for you, but it's got all it... of the leftovers of all of the hundreds of other people who have farted into these cushions. You know? Yeah, and it was designed for... Everybody, yeah. in, like it was designed with everybody in mind. Maybe everyone will like this. Yeah. So throw an element of bland, an element of bland that somebody will like. Yeah. A random person will like at least one element of this bland. Yeah. It's it's and it's trying to show you this is what comfort looks like. This is what you know. This is a safe haven for mm-hmm. you, and uh, I I think that it is a good setting for for a scary story. Um, I don't know if the short story itself overcomes the fact that it's a rehashing of other ideas that he's explored better. But I will give points to the movie for in stretching the short story and trying to get as much bang for their buck out of it as possible. Well, especially since the story itself is so psychological, which is hard to bring to the screen. So they translate it to more physical threats. Yeah. They try and give us as many different dynamic, crazy, spooky experiences in out of this hotel room as they can. Like, sometimes it's on fire, sometimes it's underwater. Yeah. And as a result, they've turned the short story into an almost two-hour movie. And I think they might have nailed it at 90 minutes. Yeah. I think that they may have stretched the story to the breaking point. Um there's a specific sequence where I think that, the, the, that this would be specifically done to, but I want to sort of hold back on that. But uh, in the basic, what we have a lot of is John Cusack talking to himself in a creepy hotel room. And that works way better than I had anticipated. Yeah, it's basically a one-man show. And he delivers the goods. Yeah, he really does. Sometimes John Cusack does not, but 1408, he showed up to work, and I'm happy to report But he's that. even being a smart-ass with himself at times, mm-hmm. when he's starting to doubt his skepticism. Yeah. And again, it's the familiar writer archetype. Usually this is a writer who's lost a wife or a daughter or a brother. In this case, it's his daughter. And that has made him extra cynical. And the only books that he can write that sell money are these faux touristy haunting books that he's yeah. become more and more... Dis- Haunted Houses of Maine. Yeah, he's, not, he's disenchanted with it. And no longer, if there was a part of him that believed in it, it doesn't anymore. No, because he's slept in half these freaking yeah. places and... and- Never encountered the real deal. And this is a story about him encountering the real deal. The real deal, deal, yeah. Yeah. So what did you think of 1408? Uh, The movie is much better than the book. The book is... Well, the story is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's much more... It takes place a lot more in his head. As the room is fucking with his... Mind. With his... Fucking with his mind... Uh, whereas again, we're saying it does, that doesn't translate well to the screen, so it was more of a physical assault at times. Yeah. Um, that being said, one of the things there was uh, this sort of mystery character, just a voice on the phone. Right. The 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 main lobby, or the 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 front desk yeah. voice that keeps asking him if he's done yet. Yeah. And that's in the book, and it's in the movie. 
But in The Shining, it was sort of referred to as the house. Yeah, or the bartender yeah. kind of uh, takes that that part. One of the ones that really stood out for me in the movie was that goddamn clock radio. Just blurting out all the time? Did, every time he gets through something, oh, the room's filling with water, it's a flood, and the water's pouring out of that painting uh, of the ship in a storm. Yeah. And then it all resets. Yeah. And that goddamn clock radio starts up, and it's seeing the carpenters, we've only just begun in a warped kind of, we've only just begun. Yeah. It's like the hell version of Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah, that's, it's something out of Hellraiser. Yeah. <clears throat> it, 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 that, that one, that really, every time it, they did it in the movie, it's just like, oh, Jesus Christ, no, please, not also, again. It does have the resetting nature, like Sam Jackson gives that plot point that no guest has lasted more than an hour in the room. Well, an hour in that room, maybe, it's a pretty subjective thing, right? Well, and that's reset every time with that damn clock, clock radio. It's always the same time. Yeah. He's only been there for three minutes. Yeah. And, and then he goes through the sequence that lasts 10 or 11, 12 minutes, and then reset, we've only just... And it's got the same damn time on it. Yeah. He's been there for three minutes. Yeah. And, uh, and just the, the using, a, a, of all the innocuous things, a carpenter's song. Yeah. But just that ominous message, we've only just begun. And again, <laughs> oh I go God. back to the, the Groundhog's Day and the thing, like with I Got You, Babe. Mm-hmm. I got you, babe. Becomes increasingly fucking, like, threatening in a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they take a totally innocuous love song and make it awful. Yeah. And I like that the horrible visions he's subjected to are basically showing him other people's exits. One yep. guy jumping out the window, one guy... This being, is how easy it is. Yeah, one guy getting brained, one guy trying to climb through the vents and dying in the vents in some sort of horrible claustrophobic death. Yeah, um, this is how that, easy it is. All you have to do is let go. All that stuff works. What the, the, the tangent that doesn't work for me that I was talking about earlier is when the room tricks him into thinking that he's got out of the room. That he escaped yeah. for three months or something. And like then that. we go on, and there's like a progression of scenes. And like, I knew where this was going. Like, I knew it was going to be the scotch, and the whole thing was back in the room. I think it overstayed its welcome. And I think that if you took that piece out of the movie and just kept the bare bones of the movie, I don't know how much we would have lost. It was the one time where I thought the movie may have outsmarted itself. I did like that bit just because it was the cruelest thing the room could have done. Yeah. And it is tor- torture, right? Yeah. It it did go on long, though. Yeah. Like, it, uh, I actually had watched the movie. This is one of the few ones I watched the movie before I read the story. Right. So, I actually didn't know where it was going with this. Like, did he and actually get And there's no get analog out? to that sequence in the story. No. Is what I'm saying. It what goes right back to reset and back into the hellscape. Yeah. Until he finally decides to set fire to the place. And again... Is another one of the little writer quirks that Stephen King doesn't smoke anymore. Yeah. Except when he finishes a book. Right. He has one cigarette. And of course, that's what John Cusack's Which character... Which is why he probably remains so prolific to this day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think I guess what I'm saying is that it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. One of the, the things I love about it uh, is the use of practical effects. Yeah. There is no CGI in this movie. And they get their money's worth out of that set. Yeah, they they destroy it and rebuild it and flood it and rebuild it and let it on fire and rebuild it and uh, it it looks beautiful. Yeah. It's 
I I think CGI honestly would have taken taken something away from it. Like yeah. it would have distracted. It is a rare case, and you're right. I think where the movie exceeds the source material of Stephen King. But that said, if I was ranking like Stephen King movies on a whole, I don't know. Like 1408 is probably going to end up in the middle for me. Um, but it is it is an accomplishment that they got so much out of that story. And I, I think a lot of it rests on Cusack. Uh, the director and Cusack. Yeah. Cusack really brings his A-game and it's just in a way of, we haven't seen in a few years. And it reminded us, yeah, because Cusack can be charming and, and fun when he wants to be. And uh, he's and especially, of, he's, he's in a room by himself. And if badly played, this guy could come off as a horrible, snarky cynic that we want to see doomed. You know? Yeah, a douchebag. The tragedy but, of the story doesn't work unless we like him, and we like him. So well, we almost always like John Cusack. Yeah. He has to work pretty hard for us not to. I mean, he Well, has to, lately in his career, he seems to specialize in playing dicks. He wants to be more of a villain. Yeah, I mean, or, or just appear in something like 2012. Right. Which, you know, Paycheck fuck that movie. Yeah. <laughs> fuck it with fire. <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to say about 1408? No, other than I really enjoyed it, and it's one of the, uh, one of the yeah, again, one of the ones where I like the movie more than the actual story itself it was I, elevated by uh, by the, the filmmakers i do agree like i say I, I think it's a solid it's a really good adaptation but it may not rank as high on the list as you think it should. <laughs> we'll find out six Stephen King adaptations ranked and reviewed and uh, it was great to have you because we could talk about the novels as well because I, I think also because it's been two years in the fucking <laughs> making but I appreciate you doing it and you know I, I like that we have that insight to it because I think adapting a novel is a bit of a chore and I think Stephen King especially because he tends to write long it, knowing when to change things and when to not is the big difference and yeah it definitely adds a, a incredibly big dynamic to how the movie works when you take into consideration the, the source material. And I will reiterate that this is six solid adaptations. Uh, finding a group of six good Stephen King adaptations means that there's probably going to be a group of six not good Stephen King adaptations in the future. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I think that it's nice that we started in a safe place. So, <laughs> <laughs> I My safe word's banana! Yes. 
Uh, so I'm very curious to hear what was your least favorite of these six adaptations and why. Uh, my least favorite would be Cujo. Okay. Um, mostly because of that first 60% of the movie. Right. Where nothing really happens. The last 40% is great, but it's getting up to it. It takes a little longer than you want it to. Yeah. I mean, it's, the movie's called Cujo. It's about the dog. Mm-hmm. Eh, let's actually get the dog involved in here somewhere. And again, it's just better handled in the book. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then fifth position? Uh, number five, uh, Christine. Um, for no reason other than it never grabbed me as a book, let alone as a movie. It's always fun to watch John Carpenter work. But it's just sort of boilerplate. It has some moments where it jumps out and moves beyond the source material of the scary car. Right. Uh, but it just doesn't grab me. Okay. Uh, number four, uh, Pet Cemetery. And a lot, of, a lot of the reasons why it's lower is the datedness of it. It does feel like an 80s movie in a way that actually even Cujo doesn't. Eh? Yeah, and one of the reasons why it's just a couple of scenes uh, that are the reasons why I put it above Cujo or Christine. Uh, that one where they're running to try to get Gage. It's upsetting. Uh, where Fred Gwynn gets killed. Yeah. Uh, where you see the dad's like descent into... I'm not even paying attention to reality anymore. Yeah. Uh, Elevated just, for me at least, just that much. Enough to get it into fourth place anyway. Right. Uh, Third place, 1408. Um, I love all the skill that went into making that movie. And John Cusack. Yeah. So refreshing to see him doing so well, hey? Yeah, and basically a one-man show. Yeah. And uh, he he really nails it, um, but it's it's a very small it's a much smaller more intimate story. The stakes aren't as high, other than for him. Right. Um, so I'm putting that at third. Okay. Uh, the mist is my second one because it was just brilliantly done. Frank Darabont nailing it again. And it's, again, that Lovecraftian, let's combine Lovecraft with modern 21st century small town uh, Americana and see what happens. And then it was, I I always love that, it's why I love zombie movies, the whole, are the monsters out there worse or are the monsters in here worse? Indeed. And so that would leave Misery. As number one? Yeah, just because it, it's... Out of all of these other five movies, there are major psychological aspects to the horror in the story, in the actual printed story. Misery is the one that nails it on screen, where you actually get to see the psychological damage and the actual psychological horror actually comes through. And it is, even though it seems tamer than your average Stephen King, it is a capital H horror movie. Yeah. Like, the, Annie Wilkes is scary and horrifying, and 
it goes beyond edge of your seat. I think it does qualify as horror. Well, any any good horror novel has a psychological aspect to the horror. Yeah. And this is one of the only Stephen King movies where the psychological aspect really comes out. Yeah. And it's actually the crux of the movie. There is physical violence happening, but it's not the major horror. Right. It's the psychological is the is the the main point. Yeah, that's what's causing so many of the problems and the, the stress and the horror. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised the, how different our lists actually have turned out. Oh. Unfortunately, we managed neither to go zero for six or six for six, so there's oh, no well. prize for you this time around. But I do hope you consider coming back, be it on Stephen King or on another subject. Uh, hopefully it won't take two years to do, but now that you've done it, we've ripped off the bandit, it's kind of pleasant. I, I, I do have uh, Wednesdays off for the foreseeable future. Wednesdays, so. alright, good to know. Um, so, in the very first episode of Rankin Review, I reviewed a uh, John Cusack movie called The Raven. The Raven? Yeah. Where he played Edgar Allan Poe, and I kind of took a shit on it. I was, like, disappointed with it. Um, so it was really good to see him do a good role, and it kind of pains me to put 1408 in the sixth position. My oh, least favorite. wow. That's where it ends up to me. I, I, I wonder if it's not just that it's also my least favorite story of the bunch that is being told here. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it probably stretches it longer than it needs to. It's almost a two-hour movie, and I think they could have got the job done a little quicker. But you're absolutely right in all the praise that you say. John Cusack does hold hold the movie together almost single-handedly, and the production design in that room is, is well-achieved. Um, I just think, again, it's a f- sort of familiar premise with a familiar character, uh, you know... It, Sort it didn't of, pop as much as the rest, but again... As far as Stephen King, we've seen this before. Yeah, it didn't pop as much as the rest, but I have to reiterate, this is a group of six very strong Stephen King ones, and one of them had to be at the bottom, and that's where I put 1408. We agree enough. completely for part number five, I put Christine. Um, again, I don't find the movie that frightening. It does tell the story that's in the book, but uh, you, it probably wouldn't entice a lot of people to read the book or think that the book was that scary. And yeah. I think that the book is scary. And so I guess something was lost in the translation. But John Carpenter... I, I is, think it's, again, the psychological aspect. John Carpenter is a get-the-job-done kind of director. He gets out of the way. He's not that obtrusive in his direction. And uh, the the movie completely works, but uh, it's just hard to get really excited he's, about He's it. not going to take a lot of artsy-fartsy choices. Yeah. So in fourth position is where I put Pet Cemetery, And I think that it's probably... You oh, know, that's the same as mine. If, if not for The Mist, the most horrifying sort of story that's been told here. Yeah. Um, but unlike The Mist, which I seem to be able to revisit and get more out of, I actually find Pet Cemetery less fun to revisit because of the harshness. Maybe it's because I have two little boys. and just <laughs> that, that might color it. The yeah. idea of, you know, having to first see your son die, then bring him back to life, and then have to kill him again. You know, it, it's just, it, it's, it's fucking horrible. <laughs> and, uh... I give them points for not pulling punches and not softening the book, but yeah, uh, it's yikes. So here's the big disagreement that we had. All the way in third position is where I put Cujo. And I do, I even conceded that the last 45 minutes of the movie is where all of the finest filmmaking happens. But I do think that the, the rendering of Dee Wallace and that little kid in that car and that siege by the dog... The filmmaking there and the storytelling there 
is rock fucking solid. As good it, as anything we see in this group. It's it, just a microcosm within the film. It is. It's it. almost like uh, the director wanted to do this movie because of that yeah. bit. And didn't know what the hell to do with the rest of the movie. It, it would have been like the perfect like short film. Yes. 45 minutes. Yeah, if, if it started with her driving up. Yeah. Maybe a little like five minute bit where it shows uh, Cujo getting bit by the bat and yeah. starting to go crazy and then started there. Yeah. Then, yeah. And all the prologue in the book, again, because we get the point of view of the dog, is just handled better in the way that so often is the case. The novels just give you more. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I have to, I've said it before, I think Dee Wallace is straight up amazing in this movie. Yes. I think she is <clears throat> fan-fucking-tastic. And she's a role that we could be someone that we don't like, but we forgive her all of her transgressions, and we are one hundred percent on her side. And uh, but when she's in the car, you almost believe that she was at the hands of a crazy director like Kubrick yeah. or Hitchcock that traumatized his actresses, yeah. because that's the kind of performance she's giving. I always think that I like I like Dee Wallace, but I think this may be one of her very finest performances. It's probably the best. Yeah, so, really. What once she's in the car yeah. and in those moments, yeah. And she's badass too. She like it's a fight to the death with this Yeah, when dog. she pulls up that bat. Fuck. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's so, on. I, I agree. I understand that the first half of the movie is way less interesting than the second, but the second half of this movie borders on amazing. Like I really do think Especially considering the time and the difficulty of the rendering of that story. I can't imagine them improving on that in any way if they were to remake it. So it may be higher on the list than it should be, but I put it all the way in number three. More controversial may be my second place choice, which is Misery. Um, Mm. Again, I got to give points to Rob Reiner. Honestly, between Misery and The Mist... It's tough. It's tough. It was a toss-up. And they're very different uh, movies, but uh, Misery brings the acting and sort of brings the sort of theatrical thing to the board, and I really appreciate the performances and the technique in it. Mm -hmm. The reason I have to give The Mist number one, over and above just the visceral, emotional impact of the ending, which really does take the wind out of you when you see it the first time. And there was a devil on my shoulder that couldn't wait to show it to somebody else to put them through (laughs) that. to watch them suffer. (laughs) But I just... I I can't say enough good things about Darabont as as a screenwriter. And as, like, this this is pulp B-movie material. And it's treated with such love and respect. He, he, like, I, I feel as much love in every frame of the mist as I do in the Green Mile and in Shawshank. And those are, quote, much more serious works. Mm-hmm. Green Mile's obviously a bit of a fantasy, but Shawshank's a straight human drama. Yeah, there's no supernatural whatsoever. This movie has acid-spitting spiders, and I emotionally collect, connect to all the characters, even the characters I don't like. Even the acid-spitting spiders. Yeah. Uh, even the the... Uh, Andre Brower character who steadfastly refuses to believe anything kinky is happening no matter what demonstrable evidence is put in front of him I believed him and it's a feat to make us me believe and connect so fervently in this clearly fake artificial world made up of stuff and elements that we have seen before it's it's incredible one of the reasons why I picked Misery over Mist is the fact that it's Rob Reiner directing yeah because he's that that's his entire 
catalog of psychological horror. <laughs> this is his first time doing it and his last time doing it. Right. And Oscars, lots yeah. of Oscars. <laughs> and it was it's it, it it's eminently rewatchable. Oh yeah. It's it's so well done and like you said you take a super charismatic and uh, big time actor like James Caan strap him to a bed <laughs> and make him act. Well, just watch him twitch and sweat. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was such a departure for him. Yeah, like, like what was the, the movie? Other... What was the movie he did before this? Harry Met Sally. I think that was the movie he did before this. And then Stand by Me, and then The Spinal Tap, and like like yeah, every movie he did is different, but pretty strong quality, right? Yeah, uh, and I get that. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, Darabont can keep on adapting King as much as he wants. And oh yes, I will. I will continue to watch. His other films don't get as much respect, it seems, or as critical praise as the Stephen King adaptations, but uh, I think he wrote the best of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, part three of oh, Nightmare Dream. on Elm Street, Dream Wars. Dream Warriors, yes, I agree. The, his, his script for the... Other than uh, um, uh, New Nightmare, which yeah. was an interesting, weird... They were trying to go for a Kevin Williamson thing. Before Kevin Williamson was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to go for a meta thing, and it, it kind of worked. Yeah. It was it was a cool take on it. But yes, Dream Warriors. Fucking love that. He... I have powers in my dreams. Exactly. So I can fight Freddy. I do. Yeah. When I dream, I can fly. There you go. Hey. <laughs> uh, he also co-wrote the 80s remake of The Blob, which is just fantastic. That's a great, stupid movie. It's Fucking awesome! He doesn't just need to do Stephen King. He is he is a genre fan. Yep. But there's something about the marriage of Darabont and Stephen King. Like I said before, they get each other. Yeah, and uh, I'm sold. And people just sort of dismiss The Mist as a B monster movie, and it is a B monster movie. But in its but it's way, a really well done B monster movie. It's the B monster yeah. movie, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's kind of magical when you get a writer and a, a director or a filmmaker that get each other. Yeah. It's sort of like the marriage of of Steven Spielberg and John Williams. Yeah, here's a composer that gets what you're doing as a storyteller, and everything turns out perfect. Yeah. All the time. So, yeah, I'm going to throw out an honorary Jerry Award. We give out awards uh, in, in the podcast to Stephen King. <laughs> Just uh, for the good, the bad, and the ugly. For being, un- for being Uncle Steve. Absolutely. Uncle Steve. I we'll, cannot wait for the Bizarre of Bad Dreams to drop this fall. We'll, and, we'll uh, always love Uncle Stevie. Yeah. And hopefully you'll hear Ribs and I talking more. Thanks a bunch. There's, there's plenty more Stephen King movies to go through. <laughs> there really is. shall return again. Uh, This is not the last episode that we'll be dealing with Stephen King. I I actually foresee it happening again in the future. So I hope all the Stephen King fans hang in there, and uh, I hope the rest of you are interested in hearing Rankin Review episode 55, because it is on the way. As always, please send feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. My name is Larry Parsons. I'm your host and random Canadian. 
and thank you so much for listening to my podcast.